Thanks so much for joining us for another edition of The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. This week, we discussed three issues affecting Yuma County and the people who call it home. The border, water, and domestic violence. First, we speak to Congressman Raul Grijalva about recent reporting on the toll illegal immigration is having on Yuma Regional Medical Center. Then we get some stunning statistics on just how much water is lost from the Colorado River each year from Sarah Porter with the Kyle Center. And finally, Yuma County Attorney John Smith joins us to discuss domestic violence and how his office is joining forces with a local nonprofit to handle the issue. We begin along the border. Earlier this week, Fox News posted an article to its website predicting the impending collapse of Yuma Regional Medical Center under the pressure and expense of providing care to undocumented immigrants. YRMC President and CEO Dr. Robert Trenchell told Fox and Friends, in just the past six months, the hospital has provided more than $20 million in uncompensated care to asylum seekers. Just weeks before, another article from Fox News claimed the city of Yuma also faced collapse. We caught up with Congressman Raul Grijalva just hours before Tuesday's State of the Union address to discuss the hospital, the real impact asylum seekers are having on southern Arizona, and his views on efforts to reform the immigration system. Well, we're seeing not only with the reporting, but I think some of the pronouncement by elected officials, be it at the federal level, state level, or local level, uh, uh, talking about imminent collapse, uh, financial disasters. Uh, we're trying to verify the figure that Yuma Regional Center sent out saying that, that in six months it lost $23 million in uncompensated care for migrants. Uh, I would like to see that verified. I would like to, uh, uh, and if it's true, then, then, then you know, something has to be, uh, something has to be done to relieve that. But I would like to see, you know, uh, 23 million in, in, in six months. Uh, I think verification on that question is a very important point. And I mentioned that and 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 other things uh, and other testimony that the Sheriff of Cochise has given and, and some of the law enforcement officials in Yuma have given uh, relative to the situation. No doubt there is considerable stress Considerable stress in communities like Somerton, San Luis, who are on the front line of dealing with with any surge that occurs around people coming on asylum and refugees. And more of them coming from countries, uh, not from Mexico, but from Central America, Brazil, Argentina, etc. And so this pressure uh, requires humanitarian support, resources for community, but it also requires making the investments that was an earlier question uh, in in home countries, so that that process processes is not does not require this surge coming to the border. That people are able to process and make their solicitation and credible fear in their home countries. Let me just say that what we're talking about is that you know I'm about getting some stuff done, and I think the president is about getting stuff done. And what we're seeing more and more is just. How do we score political points? And on the issue of immigration, the border, and the borderlands, it becomes expendable. You know, they're going to have a, a, a future Republican presidential candidate uh, 
is going to be in Tucson to give uh, to have a discussion on on border solutions. Uh, the photo ops that happen constantly in Yuma and Nogales and in Douglas relative to the border, but there's no substance and there is no clear agenda. Where is the middle ground? Uh, we would certainly like, I would certainly want to work with, with whatever colleague on the Republican side is willing to discuss the very real issues that are going on in the border and to continue to exaggerate and in many instances lie about the situation at the border, which is stressful which is demanding, which is critical. I don't deny that. But to make that seem as though we're on imminent collapse and that it is out of control and lawlessness is ruling the area, I think is a disservice both to the local community and certainly changes uh, the discussion entirely on what we need to do in the future. Everything that we're hearing about uh, on the issue of the border right now is 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 from a narrative coming from the Republican majority in the House and some of the and some senators, and that is an enforcement only. Uh, everything wrong with with uh, that's going on in the country is related to what is going on in the border. No real discussion of any policy changes. No real discussion about how we accelerate and uh, and uh, how we accelerate the investments that we need to make in the borderlands, particularly in our ports of entry. Uh, and no real discussion about legislative efforts to begin to deal with with, with uh, dreamers, the DACA students, with workforce issues around uh, uh, around uh, workers, uh, seasonal workers. Uh, I don't think we'll see any real discussion. We won't see any real discussion around the issue of comprehensive immigration reform. I hope that the administration, through its own administrative means, uh, begins to enhance and, and begins to make the investments that we need to make uh, in processing uh, uh, the enormous number of asylum and refugee seekers, uh, both at, at our border and in the home and in their home countries. I think the investments that were announced today of three billion from the private sector to encourage economic development and employment in 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 countries of origin, particularly in Central America and parts of Mexico and, and other parts of Latin America, I think is an important initiative, the private sector being involved. But I think we have to do much more in terms of our hemisphere. Uh, with issues around climate, issues around deforestation, issues around political violence uh, and persecution, those are all the harp and poverty, severe poverty that are fueling uh, this migration. You know, the, the prediction uh, by studies that by 2050, uh, over a billion people will no longer be in there, will be moving constantly be, uh, from, from their country of origin to some other place. And, uh, you know, the United States, like it or not, is that other place, uh, not be, because of who we are, because of the opportunity that's available here. And, and, uh, and I think that pressure is going to continue. So I, I would hope that if anything happens, and if the president says anything, that is going to be about the kinds of initiatives the administration is going to take. Because uh, at least in the House of Representatives, all I hear is hard line uh, uh, positions uh, relative to immigration with no movement at all on any other fronts, investment or process that I just talked about, legal process. Uh, I mean, I'm encouraged by uh, some Republican colleagues, uh, Tony Gonzalez from Texas, who is talking about the, we, we 
can't just talk about enforcement. We have to talk about investment and a process to, to deal with people and the humanitarian support that needs to occur in the borderlands so that these communities don't bear the brunt of it. I think those those are administrative initiatives that I hope to hear from. I, I think the commitment to a sane and hum, humanitarian immigration process is going to be made. Uh, but the fact remains that given the hardline extreme position that we see from uh, 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 some of uh, a lot, some of the members in the Republican caucus. I don't see any real legislative movement. It's uh, I think the president's commitment is going to have to be what his administration is going to do. That was our conversation with Congressman Raul Grijalva. KAWC also spoke with Dr. Trenchell about the article and the figures cited in it. The doctor told our Lou Gum the headline may not be accurate, but the numbers simply do not lie. Dr. Trenchell says YRMC is financially stable right now, but says the situation is unsustainable in the long term. You can hear Lou's full conversation with Dr. Trenchell on Arizona Edition, which airs right before the field, or you can check it out on our website, kawc.org. Thanks for staying with The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. The seven states covered under the Colorado River Compact were supposed to submit a mutually negotiated plan for reducing their usage of river water by January 31st. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation got two proposals instead, one from six states and another from California, which chose to go it alone. This leaves Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and the country of Mexico bracing for even deeper cuts to their water allotments. And now there's a new element to factor into the equation, evaporation. And it promises to have a profound impact on water availability, especially for central Arizona. We sat down with Sarah Porter, the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University, to get a better idea of what that means for our water future. If you do the math, you'll see that Arizona would endure a cut of up to 56%. And California, it would only, in the worst, you know, the biggest cuts are only proposed to be about something like 30% of California's. Um, total supply. Does that yeah. 56, 30 percent, does that account for evaporation? Is that why it looks so yeah. huge? Oh, so so wow. what they're doing is adding this new IPV volume, it's, and that's essentially their evaporation volume, IPV. In, in the old days, before this letter, we always had this chart that showed these two different agreements where the different States had agreed to cut the different levels of Lake Mead. And there would be one column for the agreement in 2007, which is in this chart called IG. And then there would be one column for the 2019 Drought Contingency Plan, or DCP. And so this new chart on page nine shows a third column, and it's, um, it's called IPV, which is Infrastructure Protection Volume. That's what they came up with. Like on a rough estimate is how much does evaporation account for? And it varies, right? But okay. it's somewhere it's somewhere between let's say sixteen and twenty two percent. In other words, in other words, if you wanted to 
account for evaporation. You would need to cut deliveries somewhere between 16 and, and let's say 22%. It's that much. And um, it's often, often another way is, you know, we, we sort of think about Arizona, California, and Nevada sharing 7.5 million acre feet and evaporation. And then it's also system losses. You know, you lose water when you move it around in a right. big system. But, but the evaporation and system losses add up to as much as one and a half million acre feet. So one and a half over seven and a half kind of gives you a rough idea of how much, you know, it is. But it is significant. And so... And there's um, no way to protect for that, right? There's no way to shield because water evaporates no, by right. its very nature. Right. And think about, you know, I'm sure you've seen Lake Mead. You can't, you oh can't my, cover oh, it. I mean, oh it's not, goodness. it's not feasible to cover it. And, you know, like Lake Powell, all the other dam, all the Morella Dam, you know, all the other reservoirs. It's just, it's just going to, it's just a fact that water is going to evaporate. So we're doing some modeling because we like to show what would be impacts of doing this fee. And when we're modeling this, we are assuming that all of the cuts that Arizona is proposing to take would fall on CAP water users, not on main stem users. That's just how we're modeling it. And um, so that would be the CAP getting down to, you know, like 300,000 acre feet at the, at the worst you know, the biggest cuts here are for 1,252, uh, 1,252,000 acre feet of water to Arizona, the deepest cuts. And that would leave 250,000 acre feet, roughly, maybe 350,000 acre feet of water left in the CAP canal. Wow. So we're, so we're just making the assumption that all of these cuts would fall to CAP in the, if this were implemented my bet is that the state would compensate some main stem users for taking, you know, helping out with the cuts, and then that would leave a little more water in the canal for CAP users. And I know, you know? that the um, the last time I got a look at the Yuma Ag Water Users yeah. Coalition, that they were yeah. looking for something like compensation of $1,500 yeah, yeah. per acre. That's, that's pretty expensive. And the compared with the price tag that is now offered is around $400 per acre foot. And, um, and there are water users. There are probably enough water users, especially among the tribes, to participate at, that, at a price tag more like four or $500 an acre foot. Right, and the the Native American tribes are now in the game. Um, yeah, I think legislation. Gila, yeah, yeah. Well, the crit—that's correct. The Gila River Indian community, which had really been a big voice in you know a few months ago, has. I think they've. I can't remember the amount, but they've offered to contribute a significant amount of water for as compensated conservation. But it's like hundreds of thousands of acre feet over several years. But it, it's meaningful. It's a meaningful It's very amount of meaningful. Water. And it's meaningful yeah. to um, their tribe and to the resources there. I mean, yeah, you exactly. know, this is a great but, opportunity yeah, for yeah. them. So the Bureau of Rec said 
January 31st, we want you all to t- get together and form a plan. They got something from six states and they got something from California on its own. Mm-hmm. Is that going to appease the Bureau of Reclamation, do you think? It isn't an issue of appeasing the Bureau, but rather what the Bureau wanted was a, plan- a proposal by seven you know, which was agreed upon by all seven states, which would be an alternative to the federal, to unilateral federal action. So they didn't get have, that. <laughs> they didn't get to a seven state agreement. They got to a six state plan and a one state plan. By the way, the one state plan that California submitted um, also proposes additional reductions. And my read of the California reductions is that they would, they, because they say it in the letter, that all of those reductions would follow seniority. So essentially, the, the cuts would all fall to central Arizona until it, all of the junior users' water is taken away, <laughs> until there's no Well, I mean, that, was, that was the objection yeah. that J.B. Hamby raised um, in his right. response to the plan was he said it doesn't follow the law of the river and it right, doesn't right. follow the hierarchy. So, exactly. So uh, that's my, our read of the California plan is the cuts would be by priority. And so then you, you know, we know that one of the biggest junior users is the users along the central Arizona project. And so that's 1.6 million acre feet. And then after 1.6, you know, there's some other junior users too, but after that you're starting, you know, then it, it would be other, um, you know, it, we, we don't expect that the additional cuts that California is proposing would impact California. But like looking down the, the line, mm-hmm. it, you know, the drought isn't, even if we had the most amazing winter ever, it's yeah. not going to make up for it. And it's been a That's nice correct. snow. We've had a nice snowy winter. But we, we actually, there's still quite a bit of winter left, you know. So we we really can't even close the chapter on winter <laughs> yet. <laughs> because, we, you know, we could have the rest of the winter be very dry. And the rains that we, you know, I mean, it, we expect some precipitation, you know, going into April and May and we could, it could be, this is all about the upper Rockies. It could just stay dry. And we would, you know, we'd close the winter saying, well, this is okay. We had that one, we had a nice snowy December, but the winter didn't pan out. That was Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU. We have reached out to California Water Commissioner J.B. Hamby, who is also the vice chairman of the Imperial Irrigation District, for more input on the California proposal and for the state's perspective. He referred us to a written statement insisting the six-state proposal ignores both river law and the existing water rights hierarchy. We hope Mr. Hamby will join us in the near future to expand on that position. A recent report from Amberley's Place showed an increase in the number of domestic violence and child abuse cases their advocates are seeing. But is battery and abuse really on the rise? Yuma County Attorney John Smith joins us to answer that question next on The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Please stick around.
Funding for The Fields comes from listeners just like you who support KAWC News. It's individual and community support that makes civil conversations, local analysis, and trusted news on this podcast possible. That's why we're counting on your charitable gift right now. It takes all of us to ensure the things we care about continue to thrive. So please take just a moment to donate to KAWC so we have the solid resources needed to keep this podcast going. Visit kawc.org donate to give today. And thanks. You're listening to The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Thanks for staying with us. Yuma's Amberley's Place provides support, assistance, and advocacy to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Last month, it released a report showing a more than 20% increase in requests for its services in 2022. We wondered if that meant those crimes were on the rise here in Yuma County. So we turned to County Attorney John Smith for more insight. Smith told us increased reporting is actually a good thing. He explained why and how county prosecutors team up with Amberley's to help victims of these types of crimes. Recently, Amberley's place released some numbers and and it showed a rise in domestic violence cases. But okay. I know that you that your office is very active in domestic violence and and uh, victims' rights advocacy. Is your office seeing an increase in prosecutions on domestic violence cases? I think our our as far as, far as DV cases go, they're pretty steady. I think that that rise uh, with Amberley's place was comparative to the year prior. And sometimes they do it, you know, month to date. I will tell you during the pandemic, uh, when things, schools and such were shut down, um, there was a drop in the number of cases reported or cases going through Amberley's place. Now, those are just cases going through Amberley's place. Um, and, and people should understand that Amberley's Place is open whether or not you walk in with law enforcement or not. They're 24-7. They will make themselves available. They will do Jane Doe examinations and so forth. So you could have a case that goes through their office or their agency, um, and it never really, maybe there's not a suspect involved, or it never makes it to our office because of something like that. But I, I know that they've during that pandemic, we had significant concern that there was a drop in the number of reported cases, especially when it came to uh, child-related crimes. And the reason why, Lisa, was because we suspect, and I believe it's true, is we make, with Amberley's Place, we have a children's justice project. And we go to all the, as many educators as possible a year. Um, I, I, I attend these myself for training purposes for the educators and we go to doctors, we go to clergy, if they'll see us, anyone that'll listen to us. And we do a training on indicators of child abuse and neglect and what to do and how to report it. We do it for mandated reporters and sometimes we'll even do it for discretionary reporters. But during that period of time when the schools were closed, we were unable to reach most of them. And most of those schools were virtual and they were unable to identify or have moments where children could come forth and, and disclose, uh, or there was an indicator of abuse or neglect that could be seen, so the reports were dropping. 
I'm a firm believer, and I used to end the training when I did it with the old saying that, you know, if you think you're reading a lot about it in the paper, it's not because it's happening more. It's because we're identifying and catching it more. So those numbers going up could possibly be a result of the numbers in the prior years due to the pandemic and, and the shutdowns that were occurring. Um, let me give you some background then on, on this program. This community justice project is there's a community justice coordinator in Amberley's place. And uh, in, in Yuma County, we have a written protocol on how we are going to handle, and this is subject to statutes required, I believe it's 8-817, to have a protocol written. And it's approved by all the chiefs of police, the sheriff, my office. Uh, we do put Amberley's place on it because there are there are FAC or CAC for for purpose, which is a children's advocacy center, but they're also a family advocacy center, so they do see adults. And also the uh, director of DCS is signed on to it. So we have this protocol, and it talks about how we will handle these types of, of cases. Most importantly, the parts are you don't do an interview if you're uh, you need to call and make this report because we have trained forensic interviewers who will interview the children. And by doing this, our ultimate goal is to minimize any secondary harm or victimization to these children. And every time they have to tell the story, they relive it. So we do, we try, we also try to do those interviews. Uh, it's required under our protocol will be done at Amberley's place because they have a, if you've ever been there, they have a, a really great setting for doing these. I mean, there's no way around it. It's a tough issue, but it's, it's about. Yeah, but they, but you know, sometimes just having a say, uh, like a soft place to land can make all the difference. It's a lot better than doing it at the police department or at the hospital or in the very place where the victimization is occurring the home, if that's where it's at. So this is a, this is really great. And it really is a place for all of us. I mean, uh, Amberley's Place is is a nonprofit, but they exist for the very purpose of, uh, they're not a a safe house, they're not a place to stay, for uh, us to, for people to go and they can, uh, for suspicions of abuse or neglect, they can have a forensic medical uh, interviewed first with uh, a trained investigator, whether they're from law enforcement or DCS that's trained in so many hours to handle these types of cases with children. And then they will determine uh, alongside if necessary. And sometimes they'll call the sexual assault nurse examiner and tell them what they got. And they'll, they'll converse and see if, if that would be warranted a sexual assault nurse examination or or a nurse examination, if it's not sexual in nature, but just a, 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 type of child abuse, physical abuse other than sexual. That was Yuma County Attorney John Smith. For more information on the services Amberley's Place provides, you can visit their website. And if you're not in need of their help, it's also a great place to find out how you can help them continue their mission. The 
Field is a production of KAWC, Colorado River Public Media. Send your questions or comments to me, lisa.sturgis at kawc.org. Our theme music was composed by Steve Hennig and performed by members of the Yuma Jazz Company. For more information, visit yumajazz.com. Thanks so much for listening to The Field from KAWC. Remember, you can always hear the show at kawc.org, on the KAWC app, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Lisa Sturgis. I sure do hope to see you back here next week. Till then, keep yourself informed.